I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. This is a poem by Rabia. I changed one of the words. It acts like love, and she said, music, and I invite attention. It acts like love, attention. It reaches towards the face, touches it, and tries to let you know that all will be okay. It acts like love and tells the feet you do not have to be so burdened. My body is covered with wounds this world has made, but still I long to kiss them. Even when God said, could you also kiss the hand that caused each scar? For you will not find me until you do. It does that. Love, it helps us to forgive. One story we can tell ourselves as humans is that we were born into a traumatic world, a world where greed, anger, and delusion, ignorance, fear, are the dominating principles that have gave way to great systems of oppression and suffering, that we are all entangled in them. You can look out at this great body of the earth and see so many wounds, so many scars. You can bear witness to the hand chopping off the foot over and over, brothers killing brothers, family members not speaking, holding resentments, friends lying to friends, neighbors betraying neighbors, parents abusing their children. And of course, this process isn't happening out there in the world. We're doing this to ourselves and to those that we love and to the world all the time in our minds, in our thoughts, and sometimes in our actions and in our speech, cutting, cutting, defending, defending lying, blaming, shaming, resenting. This is an intimate process, this process of being with delusion, being with beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance, being with fear and insecurity and seeing the ugliness of human nature out there and in here. Are they separate? Could say it's a fear response, something that's learned or conditioned, the ways that aggression and ignorance show up in our own hearts. We forget 
Maybe that's it. We forget we are connected. We forget that we need and rely on each other constantly. We forget that we are whole. And so we judge, we criticize, we blame, we resent each other, and we also do this to ourselves. So in this story, it can appear that we are destined to suffer. The fog of ignorance is so thick. The conditioning, the trauma, scars upon scars upon scars. And yet in this same story, the heart, the heart knows how to forgive. There is resilience. There is healing. It's not just continuous open wounds, they're scars. We move on. We love, we still know how to love. And in this story of apparent suffering, the sun rises every day and it's beautiful and so is it when it sets and flowers they open towards the sun and birds soar in the sky and they take care of their young and they sing and this breath this one is passing through your nostrils right now. And maybe your palms are sweaty. At least you are being caressed by whatever clothes you're in. And maybe your eyes are soft or a little moist. And I don't know what your tongue is doing, but it's crazy. (laughs) It's in there, it's tasting something. And maybe I was writing this and I walked downstairs for work circle and the Sangha was folding towels together in silence which is just one of the beautiful things that happens during Sashin, like a collective project of taking care of something in silence. No one asks for help, it's just response. And you see compassion and no matter what state of mind is moving through you, it's touching. And there, is music in your heart and you remember you can sing and you love for no reason but because that's what the heart does and you recognize your own resiliency and you realize that you make small acts of forgiveness every single day 
and you realize that others too are granting you this kindness as well, forgiving your ignorances, forgiving all your little mistakes, forgiving those small hurts. Do you realize that joy also visits daily and often? That perhaps maybe there are equal parts, joy and pain in this world. And perhaps for a moment, you recognize that you're okay feeling both both the pain and the joy, that you can experience both, that something can, and you do, and you do, and you do, and you do, and that they coexist simultaneously, joy and sorrow, praise and grief. And just to recognize this brings you great contentment and perhaps doubles your joy. I recently read this story of the Babemba tribe in South Africa. Now this is a story I read, so I don't know all the details. But what I heard is that in this tribe, when somebody acts irresponsibly or unjustly, they are put in the center of the village. And all the people who live in the village cease work and gather in a circle around this person all the children are invited, the entire village is present. And they circle around and they begin telling the story of this person's beautiful qualities, all the good deeds that they did in their life, all the virtues that they can remember, all the small acts of kindness in great detail. Every single person gets to speak and this ceremony goes on for days, it can. This recollection of virtue, reminding the person and each other that this is a person of goodwill, that this person's heart is all right and that it takes a community to raise a person. And we're all interconnected. And once all the stories are shared, they have a party. They celebrate and welcome this person back in to the community. A beautiful example of what's possible as a justice system. Huh? Can we trust each other's goodness? 
Can we trust each other's goodness? This is a moment-to-moment question. Every time we judge, every time we criticize, can I let that go and see the goodness underneath? Can we trust our own goodness? Can we do this for ourselves? Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Can we trust love and kindness and the recollection of virtue over the punishing voice of the inner critic? The shaming, the policing voice of the inner critic? Can we gather a circle of ourselves around the one who's feeling bad or hurt and pour praise and love for that part? Appreciate, remind ourselves of our beautiful qualities, our virtue. Have this practice I do in my mind when I catch my mind complaining about someone or telling a judgmental or biased story about someone. In the moment I catch myself doing it, and I got this partially from Byron Katie's turnarounds, I think of three things that I appreciate about them. Small things. And if I turn towards, I have noticed this, so I continue to do it because it's quite interesting. If I turn towards the small things that I appreciate about someone, I'm invited to see them. Because I have to look. I was busy looking through judgment, through whatever I perceived them to do that was wrong or unskillful through this negative valence. And so now I have the opportunity to see them fresh, to look and see, are there virtuous qualities? To really see them, to see them as a whole human being, because I know that's what they are. And so when I do that with the innocence of a child, what comes forward? I notice how they walk carefully in the zendo. I can appreciate that. Care. Care of placing down each foot. I notice that they pause for a couple of seconds and feel the sun touching their cheek they walk across the parking lot. I can enter that. I can appreciate that. Turning towards the sun. Where I see how they smile when they see the baby swallows outside of the office. Where I remember the time when they got teary talking about someone they loved. How that touched me how they showed their vulnerability, their heart. Or what it's like to sit with them in silence while we eat a meal. 
Or I remember a time that they were kind to me for no reason. Left me a note or a gift, a small gift, but showed me that they really cared. I may also notice times when they seemed afraid or sad. And seeing now this whole person made up of all these tiny human moments. Compassion, kindness is an option. Sometimes the last thing my mind wants to do is see somebody through the eyes of compassion. Like to let go of that self-righteousness or that I'm right or whatever subtle resentment. Part of practice is the willingness to not know. To let go and feel our own vulnerability is what often is below anger and judgment and criticism is sadness or vulnerability, our own self-doubt and insecurity. This practice of compassion and appreciative joy, if we're really willing to do it, breaks down walls. It cuts through the layers of separation and delusion. It exposes parts of ourself we may not have wanted to see, let alone let other people see. It also exposes this fixed belief of separation, this fixed belief in separation. in independence. I'm going to do it my way. I don't need any help. Mystics of old can wax poetic about dissolving the boundaries of separation, interbeing with all that is, letting the universe merge into my heart and I merge into the universe. And we can feel this longing and heartache to just let go already, to embrace, to include it all. It seems like the ego creates so much suffering, so why do I keep clinging to the ego? Why don't I just see through this illusion? And yet, as we know from practice, the existential fear lives deep in the body or somewhere. Something appears to pull back. We encounter psychic blocks in our releasing and letting go. Or maybe we just simply forget. We don't know what to do and question, is there anything we can do? Here's a case from the Mumon Khan. Ordinary mind is the way. 
Joshu, the great master Joshu in this koan appears as a student. A very curious astute student. Joshu asks his teacher, Nansen, what is the way? What is the path? What is the path of liberation? And Nansen replies, ordinary mind, your ordinary mind is the way. And then Joshu asks, well, if the ordinary mind is the way, should I direct myself towards it? Isn't that what we should do if I want to be liberated? And nonsense says, well, if you direct yourself toward it, you move away from it. And then Joshua asks, well, what can I do? <laughs> like, isn't that the point of all of this? Like, shouldn't I just go for the goal? If we don't try, he says, how can we know? How can we know that it's the way? And Nansen replies, well, the way doesn't belong to knowing and not knowing. It's not stuck in that duality of you're going to get it or you're not. Knowing is an illusion. Knowing is an illusion. Not knowing is blankness. Ignorance. If you really want to attain the way, if you really attain the way, not just want, but if you really attain the way of no doubt, it is like the great void, vast and boundless. How then can there be any right and wrong in the way, in the path? And like all good koans, Joshua was enlightened. <laughs> what can we do? Trust the practice. Trust the practice. Trust our vow. What is trust? It's something that develops over time. This practice of vigil that we're doing for me, is a practice of entrustment. Trust is something that develops over time as we continuously put ourselves in, in the present moment, which we always are in, but we continuously align ourselves with our vow, with just this with our bodhisattva aspiration. I trust the awakened ones. Chosen always says to me whenever I'm feeling stuck, she's like, ask for help. This is not your enlightenment project. Lean into the awakened ancestors, they're holding you. They're waiting for you to ask for help. There's so many beneficent forces. Liberation is right here. Let it be revealed to you.
Trust the heart's innate goodness. Trust presence. Trust true nature. Nonsense is the mind, the way. Awareness is vast and boundless. It takes us completely out of this idea of getting the method right and points directly to the nature of mind. All your strategies, all the ways that you use to measure success and failure, no. You're still caught in the cycle of the mind and trying to get it right. But look at the mind's nature. It's vast and boundless, like vast space, like a great ocean, so deep. And thoughts and all these strategies are like waves on this ocean, the surface of the ocean. But look behind those thoughts. Feel, sense right now. Right behind. Thoughts are made. I, I love this. Uh, analogy of the ocean because thoughts and awareness are made of the same nature, are of the same nature. But some we're often so identified with the surface that we miss that that we're held. We are this great ocean. We contain so much. like feeling the space behind the eyes and then just keep going back, just like sink back, 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 down, 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 down. How far down can you go? I watch videos of the Challenger deep expedition, so like you can go far down into that. Sink back into your depths. It's, just, it's the same with body sensations. Often when I'm meditating, I have the idea that like meditation is happening in this body. There's like a location. Wherever there's a lot of sensation, that's where meditation is happening. But the sensations are moving. This is also the surface of the ocean. And behind each sensation, there's, again, vast, boundless awareness. Depth of the ocean. The sensations are like, the body is appearing and disappearing every moment like and parts of it too it's like here's a part of the body and then here knee appears and then a hand appears 
and then it disappears, and then an earlobe appears for whatever reason. I don't know. Knee disappeared. It's amazing. Sounds appear, sniffles appear. And behind every sensation, there's this vast depth. And as the mind settles, as we're less identified with the thoughts, you can see them as waves. Or I just kept getting that image of just the light of the sun reflecting on a gentle waves of the ocean, like a calm ocean or a calm lake even, deep lake, like um, Crater Lake, if you've ever been there. We have these pockets of sensation, sensation welling up and then returning to the depth of the ocean, welling up, returning to the depth of the ocean. And even this sense of I, sense of someone in control, someone meditating, is just a sensation. You can unhook from that and see that the depth of the ocean is right there. That's just an idea, this meditator is one who will get enlightened. In the vast ocean, can there be good and bad experience? And how would you judge? How would you measure? Say the words in your mind right now, right. And then be, be connected to the ocean or to the vastness of your being right. What is that referring to? Wrong. Okay. Good. Bad. It's like, see how these words disappear, these labels arise and disappear don't affect the ocean at all. Thoughts don't need to have traction. They don't need to be followed or understood or like you don't need to be right up in there holding on to them, making sure that everything's staying together. I sometimes do that. Thoughts think themselves. You don't need to get involved in that whole process. The breath breathes itself. These are two places I can get stuck. The ocean of awareness enjoys itself. Is that true in your experience? Rumi says, the soul is here for its own joy. I always think of that quote when I'm reflecting on this immeasurable, appreciative joy or empathetic joy. 
It allows me permission to rejoice. Muman's capping verse to this koan is hundreds of flowers in spring. Hundreds of flowers in spring, the moon in autumn. A cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If there is no vain cloud in your mind, for you, it is a perfect season. For you, it is a good season. The practice of appreciative joy reminds us to pay attention. to pay attention, to pay intimate, close attention. That's where joy resides. <laughs> to open your heart to the natural world. There's this line from one of the poems by the women ancestors. Um, I think it's Upalavana. Ask the sunflower with its millions of seeds. Ask the lizard, how long has this been going on? This newness of each season or each day, the sun comes up, the flowers bloom in spring. No matter what Suffering thoughts are moving through our minds, no matter what else is happening on the earth, spring still comes. Winter still comes. It snows. The moon is full. The sky is clear. There's joy. The bird is singing. The flower is just basking in the sun. The tree is providing shade. The grasses are swaying in the breeze. The maple tree with its hundreds of hand-like leaves is just swaying in the breeze. There are pockets of joy right in the midst of this suffering world. And we can experience both the pain and the beauty. This heart has such capacity for kindness has such capacity to bear witness to suffering. It has such capacity to sit with discomfort. It has such capacity to recognize beauty, to experience joy. It doesn't have to make sense. 
The joy of this life is in the actual living of this life. It's not in ideas or stories or koans. It's in your experience of this life, the way you see the flower, the way your heart opens to the birds, the way your mind opens to the moon in the sky, or to the sensations on the bottoms of your feet, to this breath. Breath by breath, bird song by bird song, breeze by breeze. We're invited in. Heartbeat by heartbeat. So at the monastery today, we are in the midst of our 24-hour vigil. And we'll be sitting through the night, and many residents have committed to sit through the night. And so I invite all of you who are listening to uh, join the vigil. Practice devotion, practice freedom, practice liberation for all beings, yours and mine. Because we are a Sangha, a global Sangha. We can't do this practice alone. Even someone who's meditating in a cave is not practicing alone. May we recognize and rejoice in the virtues that have put us on this path of awakening, this path of love. And may we celebrate and recognize the virtue of all beings. May we practice recognizing virtue, rejoicing in virtue, appreciating all the lives that make up this one life. 